Hello and welcome to Future Thinking from Stylus. I'm your host, Christian Ward, Head of Media and Marketing at Stylus. And today we're going to take a look at the state of online culture and the trends that brands should be paying most attention to, from meme mechanics to trolling. So joining me to unpick all of this is Chris McCrudden, Senior Planner at Edelman, author and web trends connoisseur, and Julia Ahrens, Editor of Media and Marketing at Stylus and our resident pop culture expert. So first of all, Chris... The cultural conversation on social media is very nuanced, it's ever-evolving, and you really kind of need to keep on top of it 24-7 to stay up to date. So surely this is the worst place possible for brands to try and engage people. That's a very big question. <laughs> um, my, um, I'm going to ask, ask a question back. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, Well, where else are they going to do it? Well, quite, but um, um, I think, you know... <laughs> We, we, we write a lot about online culture. Obviously, it's stylist, and we have a lot of clients who are, you know, on these platforms. Um, but it seems to be uh, increasingly contentious somewhat to be on these platforms and trying to be down with the kids, so to speak. Yeah. Um, well, I think there's kind of there's, there's a few different parts to that, which I sort of quite like to unpick. And the... Um, the idea that a brand can, in today's world, kind of stand apart um, from the the way that culture is evolving and the way that sort of culture is kind of transmitted and created online, um, I think is naive. Naive um, because brands are inherently part of um, part of our world and part, um, and, and part of our culture. Um, and saying that they kind of they can um, they can stand apart and do what they want to do is a very what I would call paid mindset. So the it's the mm. idea that you, the you, the way that you as a brand communicate with your um, with your consumers with your stakeholders is through adverts, and I think that we often fall into the um, fall fall, uh, fall into the scenario because quite a lot of the kind of the social content that brands produce is produced by advertising agencies, um, and they do fall into this paid mindset. So what are we going to do with Twitter? What are we going to do with Facebook? We're going to do um, we're going to do a video that makes people cry, um, and that's kind of the default. Um, um, as sort of the, ra- the default range of content that brands allow themselves to fall into, because they they're used to sort of um, to approaching media from the paid from a pay, um, from a paid point of view, and their agencies are, are used um, are used to doing it as well. And then on the completely the other end of the uh, of the curve, um, then you've got brands that kind of haven't what I would call an inherently earned mindset, uh, where what they, they know that what they what they can do and what they can they can accomplish um, through Paid media is very is very small because they have very small budgets, um, or kind of small small windows of, or small windows of opportunity. So therefore, what they have to do is they have to approach using social from an um, from an earned mindset. They kind of they so they they have to keep a very close eye on what's going uh, what's going on in culture culture at the moment and um, and, res- and and respond to it. Some brands do it very well. I think where it gets awkward is where you fall somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. So you get so you get brands that right okay we should do something about online culture uh, and then where it gets where it gets awkward is if you, if you're a brand that has a fairly long sort of media and marketing and planning life cycle then you end up doing something that was current six months or twelve months or eighteen months ago uh, when the, the world's already moved on. A good example um, I can think of is back in 2016, I was trying to persuade Samsung um, that they should be doing something around the concept of living your best life. 
um, because that was a concept that had kind of been bubbling up and it seemed to kind of like sort of be um, very, very present within online, uh, within online culture but hadn't yet sort of reached mainstream discourse. Um, and now I walk around um, our office. I work work in, uh, work in Edelman um, in London, and more or less every single brand, a lifestyle brand that I see, is in some way trying to engage in the concept of consumers and enabling consumers to li- uh, to live their best lives. This is and would be it would have been an entirely um, valid thing for a brand to do in 2016, but in 2019 is like, come on, guys, pay attention. <laughs> So you talk there about this idea of of being six or twelve months behind, but I mean, um, uh, you know, you can be behind within weeks now yep. uh, when it comes to you know more of the sort of meme like. I mean, so within a week, sometimes three days. Mm. It, it sort of it does keep up with the twenty four hour news cycle now. It's just as we're so used to processing so much information and we're so quick to flit onto the next topic, and then the same really happen, happens with the cultural conversation surrounding that. And with memes, because then they keep building on it. So you may be using the right meme, but you're three steps behind because you haven't yet combined it with, you know, anime pigeon guy, because that's sort of the next evolution that came in three hours ago. I I, I think some of it comes down to the fact that brands, particularly with their in-house sort of marketing, comms, um, digital people, they don't, and I'm, I'm trying to be nice about this, they don't often employ people who have, who are active participants in online culture. Mm-hmm. I, I can I cannot think of a single client I've had in working in f- comms and PR for 15 years who I would describe as being extremely online. They're just, they're just not there. They're not present. They don't pay attention. Um, and, that, and that comes out in the work. And I, you, we worry about something being kind of like three hours or three weeks late. I'm kind of more worried about something being three months, six months, nine months too late, um, just because I think there's that's a problem that we, as you know, because I work work on the consultancy side and I work I work directly with brands, kind of trying to shorten those life shorten those life cycles a bit is something that is kind of within our um, within our within within our ability to um, to, to do. I like to talk about in terms of um, is the point of this job is it to be better or is it to be is it to be less shit i mean it's also a question just of understanding what memes or more like meme mechanics are and is and i think the mistake that many brands Mm. make is that they think a meme is you know the image macro and it's like a culture unit in and of itself like a tv show or a podcast when really it's just a grammar it's just the way people communicate now and i think once you've embraced that you can also totally get away with using things that are three or six months old because if you just portray yourself as somebody who uses this as a language as part of their grammar then it's fine the problem comes up when they keep thinking oh this is like the cool comic hits share now so let's do something with it if it's not connected into sort of the cultural stream that you're presenting and that's where the well that's come true in. yeah i mean i think the probably the most well-known meme of the last couple of years is still going which is the distracted boyfriend oh, yeah and that still has that still gets used <laughs> i saw it today in fact um so we're talking obviously about social media as, as this kind of homogenous thing which mm. obviously it isn't um and I think we're finding more and more at the moment that people are starting to move away a little bit from the big public open forums like Facebook and Twitter and starting to move to things like 
Well, Discord, you mentioned, Julia, which mm-hmm. I think you should probably explain what Discord is because uh, I'm not even sure what it is, to be honest. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Discord, well, originally it was meant to be a web and or mobile application for um gamers who happen to be friends and who want to chat via text or voice while they're playing together in games that might not have in-game communication opportunities. But just because it is sort of a versatile platform, as in you can, if you download Discord, you can start your own server. And then on that server, you can have something like a message board from the 90s. You can have a live chat room. You can have video or voice chat. You can have different um, rooms that are locked by password within the community even. So it's like a really rich landscape in which you can manage your community and your fans and the people you communicate with and who has access to which aspects of this So it's much more, much more closed, you would say, than something like yes. Twitter. So, so, so yeah, so we're seeing a little bit of a shift towards these sort of environments, Facebook groups, newsletters are very popular at the moment, um, much more of a kind of closed environment. Uh, mm. You know, how, how do brands cope with that shift where they're no longer going to be broadcasting to a, a wide audience but perhaps trying to infiltrate you know a very small and passionate and and quite uh, well policed i suppose smaller group um well <laughs> <laughs> don't is the answer quite a big question yeah. no not not don't mm. um i think these this is the kind of um environment where it's i'm going to go back to an earned mindset um where it's quite useful if you if so you give me that level that kind of ecosystem of um platforms where you don't necessarily own the channels and you don't necessarily own the content what you have to do to get a brand me- to get a brand's message across is know the right person to talk to to plant the message mm-hmm. with that's public relations um so we're sort of that's leaning back into a sort of form of of engaging with digital media which is all which is much more about kind of like well who um, who is um, who is the person here with um, here with influence now how can i influence them I mean, that that's one part of it i think the other part of it is get to know your media really i mean i, I the, the the idea that we um so there are only two or three channels worth engaging with which is seems to be the truth at the moment is frankly baffling to me it's it's sort of it's um uh there's a kind of a, the, the we're kind of looking at a state of um sort of content and platform monopoly like it's normal mm. and it's not normal it's also just overwhelming as just an end user even for me where it's literally my job to be on top of culture but quite honestly sometimes my twitter feed not just sometimes every day my twitter feed exhausts me <laughs> so the promise that we could potentially go back to something it seems a bit reductive maybe now that you know you just have separate platforms where you go for specific purposes seems like an absolute blessing so i know that you know maybe today i just want to talk about my favorite TV show with people who know things about it and not have to stumble about news on Brexit. That would be delightful. That's, from a user experience point yeah. of view, there's, there's, there's a lot to be said about that. But again, if we think back to this environment we're living in at the moment where you've got Google, we've got Facebook and we've got Instagram, um, which seem to be the kind of the main kind of social channels that most consumer brands are engaging with, are engaging with at the moment. If you are a brand um, pushing out content via the, uh, via those channels, you may have a huge um, following, for example. But how sure can you be that your post is going to show up mm. at a per- show up in a person's feed at the right moment and the right time for them to make a buying decision? I mean, you, 
in theory, you can reach lots and lots and uh, reach lots and lots and lots of eyeballs via these platforms. But how effective or timely are those communi- timely are those those communications? Facebook and Google will obviously come back to us and say, "Well, you know, you can micro-target, you can sort of pay. Oh, of course, you always have to pay um, in order to get in um, to get in front of consumers." But I think there's kind of there's something sort of beginning to break down here in terms of the value that consumers get from these kind of all-encompassing um, platforms that encourage us to just let everything hang out. I think they're becoming increasingly less compelling for extremely online people. Um, again, when, when we think about how things like newsletters or Discord or even Mastodon, if that's still a thing, um, they're kind of how, how and where they're breaking up the ecosystem, they're breaking, breaking it up at the edges. For most people, the social experience is still sort of scrolling through Facebook, looking at what your racist auntie in Stevenage has, po- uh, has posted, and, uh, posted and rolling their eyes. That is the mass experience at the moment for social media. So if, you're, if, if a client comes to you and says, I want to reach the most engaged people, mm. and you talk about the, the very online people, yeah. as having more value in that sense? It is a question that I don't think we are... I, I, it's a conversation I don't even think we're having. Um, the, in most cases, when a brand comes to you, they're looking for reach. Um, and... In some cases, they might be looking for a particular audience, and then you can um, you can go down into that and say, "Well, this audience spends a lot more time online um, than the than the average audience is." I don't yet think that we've learned how to look at what I would call the extremely online consumer and quantify them in terms of you know this person. How often do they post? How often do the do they you know what's their reach versus the uh, kind of uh, versus a uh, versus an online civilian's reach? You know, do they uh, is what they post more effect more effect more effective or more more influential? I don't think we've looked into that mm. um, yet. Often because I don't think brands see it yet. Really, they just they. Mostly, you see. Oh, we want to re- we want to we want to get people who buy milk. Okay, yeah. it's ninety three percent of the population. <laughs> it's quite, it can be quite difficult to get down to it, down to it, down to it, the, the the kind of texture of audience that you would like. Well, yeah, the texture of audience is an interesting way of putting it because obviously, uh, I mean, at stylists we talk a lot about now attitudinal and um, sh- uh, uh, values over demographics mm. and that sort of thing. And I feel like we've been talking about that for a long time, but also at the same time, don't think it's permutated um, brand thinking to the extent that I would have thought by now. Is there still a desire to reach millennials as opposed to people who are into sustainability or who are activists or who are, um, you know, gamers or something? Is it still a bit too broad? Um, Often what... It, it comes da- often comes down to kind of the the, the question of reach versus relevance, mm. and often when you start going down a couple of orders, so we are looking at people who are really into sustainability, for example, and then you apply another apply another filter, you go from an an opportunity of ten million down to a, an opportunity of one point two million people, say just but to pluck pluck a figure flick, uh, pluck a figure out the air, um, and that that can be more difficult to sell to a brand because there's you know there's there are fewer people there, um, people there to sell to, and um, and sometimes a brand just doesn't have 
the information on who their audience is. Mm. So they they want to appeal to as wide an audience as possible. But then on the other hand, it's obviously the more universal your message becomes, the less cut through you have. Because if you want to appeal to millennials yeah. and the next brand wants to appeal to millennials and the next brand just wants yeah. to appeal to millennials and you're all trying to make sure you're not annoying or insulting anyone mm. and then it's just flows into the one social feed again. Yeah. So surely if you have a more targeted strategy, then you can actually create reach by just engaging a very specific community. And I think that sort of activity might break through more on platforms like TikTok right now, where you have the, yeah. again, very mercurial and sort of off the day, but the hashtag challenges and the kind of stuff that kind of blows up in three days, but still then creates reach because just, you know, yeah, maybe I'm looking at my racist aunt in Stevenage, but also my racist aunt has to look at the stuff that my little cousin yeah. might create because, you know, they saw an interesting hashtag today. So Let's just back up there and and, um, and describe TikTok for those. Because, I mean, obviously TikTok is, to a certain extent, nobody over 19 uh, ever uses it at <laughs> the moment. Or has any business being on or it. Or has any business thing. being on it. And obviously, as uh, I am well over 19... Um, it would be interesting for you to explain, Julia, what TikTok is and why it's so interesting right now, why it's blowing up right now. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I too am well over 19. Um, but so is Arnold Schwarzenegger, who, by the way, is on TikTok and his um, feed is delightful. <laughs> well, you can't mess with Arnie. He can do what he likes. Truly can't with that accent, but I would say that. Um, TikTok is, in short, it's a short video blogging platform. What that means is if you open your app, you get a feed of usually 15 to 20 second videos often set to popular songs at the time of people either doing bit comedy little sketches dance routines or hashtag challenges which can go back to things if you're you know a bit older but still very on the internet you might remember things like planking where people took photos of themselves just lying down straight as a board on mm -hmm. the most random things it's sort of that but now it's with motion and sound and visual effects and people just cluster around these hashtags and engage with the content and have fun with it if something um, extraordinary happens just in general mainstream pop culture if you have an outrageous soundbite or quote from the latest Kardashian episode people might start filming themselves reenacting this and then just again adding layers so in that sense it's sort of the platform at the moment that feeds most into meme grammar and meme communication mm -hmm. because it's all built on taking a bit of content that already exists like a soundbite or a song or somebody else's video and then putting your own spin on it right. and it is mega addictive because the feed is curated by a fairly efficient AI that very quickly figures out what content draws you into watching analyzes the faces of the sort of people who perform on the stuff that makes you stick around so within half a day's use it basically becomes just an ongoing never-ending feed of fun videos that entertain you as an individual viewer and it's fantastic and wild <laughs> sounds great so it sounds like there's an opportunity there for brands right because you're talking about people remixing um established media yeah, absolutely. Um, for instance, and again, a very online example, but um, Chipotle, every year for the National Avocado Day, they just so happen to hand out their otherwise um, quite dearly priced guacamole for free. And to promote that this year, they went back to um, an American children's entertainer song that went viral back in the days when things went viral 10 years ago called is actually the banana song but it has a stanza in there that's all about guacamole and under that hashtag guacamole challenge then ask people to record their own dance and or performance interpretation of that song and netted some 500,000 contributions from people on the feed um, upped 
the actual um, sales of entrees with added guacamole by a huge percentage and just is generally considered a massive success for the brand in America. And um, luxury brands like Michael Kors have seen huge success in China in with TikTok's sister, identical sister app, Dowin, where again, they just ask um, users to model Michael Kors accessories or fashion items. And it's just all about kind of taking that really highly engaged um, person who is living a lot of their life online and likes to participate in these little actions and taking that content stream and directing it towards your brand to sort of wash across that board for the day because it's all willing and happy participants. So well, that's, an interesting, part, that's an interesting point, willing and happy participants. I mean, Chris, why are they willing and happy, do you think, on TikTok? I mean, <laughs> let me put this another way. Why are people? Let me put this another way. So a year ago, we would have probably been sitting here talking about HQ Trivia. Yeah. A year before that, we would have been talking about Snapchat. Yeah. Mm. Now it's TikTok. Mm. For brands, I mean, in my opinion, it's a fun sort of world to experiment yeah. for, as a brand. Obviously, it's expensive. I think it's 150000 or something dollars for TikTok takeover or something like that. Um, but if you have the budget, it's a, it's a fun time to experiment but some of these things seem to have shelf lives. And maybe next year we're going to be talking about something else. Yeah. Mm. So If you think about how much, a brand, how much a brand puts behind your average TV spot, mm. um, is it much more expensive than shooting that new advert that you don't necessarily need? I don't know. It could be. Um, it could be not. I think the, other th- the, the thing to, to bear in mind with these things is, you know, something new will come along every year, every two years. But... And if we want to think about it from a paid mindset, it's like, well, that's just like a TV show, isn't it? There'll be a new hot TV show that comes along every couple of years. And the price of cultural relevancy is putting your money up against something cool. Right. That's, though, that's the table stakes for being a brand. You know, what's, what, what's cool out there? What's current? If you want to be part of that, then you have to work out to be work out how to be how to be part, be part of that and you can you can if you're very nimble if you're very current if you're very relevant if you have the right partners on board you can elbow yourself into that um through kind of through sort of sheer sort of earned potential and chutzpah but that you know that's, that's difficult and you're not going to do do that every time or the other way is to pay to be there so that's interesting this idea i mean i like, i like the way that you say elbowing your way in there because just to go back to something that you were saying earlier, Julia, about if you don't try to specifically reach a certain kind of audience, you become, you blandify yourself, basically trying to reach everybody. And the flip side of that, perhaps, is this idea of, well, we're going to elbow ourselves in there and make a bit of a scene and, and, and get noticed, which can, you know, cause problems for brands. But um, Chris, you've talked to us before um, at Stylus about this idea of, of trolling mm. and, uh, and how important it is as a potential strategy. Um, and the pitfalls and opportunities there, I think, are quite interesting. I call it the audience engagement strategy of our times. There we go. Um, well, if you, if you think about how crowded and busy and fast-moving our media, uh, media landscape at the moment, we have as much as three or four news cycles a day, um, if we're unlucky. Um, what a lot of brands now think they need to do in order to get attention is to be outrageous um, and to poke 
um, at us and to get a reaction, which is what why I think a lot of brands have borrowed from the engagement strategy of trolls. Say something outrageous, insult someone, find an enemy, and find and, and find find common ground with your um, with your audience through an enemy. Um, I could have talked about the kind of the biggest and most best intention troll of 2019 was um, Nike partnering with Colin Kaepernick. Um, yes, they did. You know, they did the right thing because um, Nike is a is a brand that fundamentally supports athletes, um, and Colin per- Kaepernick was an athlete that was in need of support um, and still is. So you know, they 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 did they did a partnership with him, um, which is great. But the thing that gave that um, the thing that gave that partnership its cultural relevance and its 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 viral potential was the enemy that that would poke um, a certain for a certain forty fifth president of the United uh, the United States of America. Um, I think he tweeted, uh, "What were Nike think? What were Nike thinking?" Well, uh, you, Nike were thinking twenty six thousand eight hundred retweets. <laughs> frankly, by doing that, they were bearding a reaction out of the most powerful and possibly the British man in the world <laughs> so there's a there's a, a brand strategy for all of you to try and follow but that um, kind of that shows up it shows up in big ways and it shows up in small ways as well mm. so no because i'm just wondering whether there's not a dividing line between trolling and just happening to take a stand for something that is you know possibly considered a larger yeah. societal good and how do we discern between the two modes of communication I think that's a good question mm. because if you're going to be sort of do gen- genuine cause based marketing, then that's going to that that is going to offend some people. Yeah, um, and I don't think there's ever going to be a kind of a clear dividing line uh, between those two things. Some 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 often it might come up. Um, the 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 root of that is well, what are you doing it for? Mm. And like, maybe the solution is also just to make your statement but then not necessarily poke back at every little bee that comes because they are offended and oh, then yeah. not maybe you know direct your own power as a brand with 50 million followers towards you know a random person somewhere who just happens to disagree with your stance and then yeah. It's, yeah coming down on somebody with 20 followers including three of their own nieces yeah 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 now chris alongside your day job and obviously keeping up with all these Endless online trends. It's exhausting. You, yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> but nonetheless, you still manage to find time to, to publish novels, and you've just published your second one. Um, so congratulations. Thank you. And uh, please tell us all about it. And, and does any of this that we've talked about, does any of it feed into... Yes, it, yeah, it yeah. does, actually. Um, so I've written two novels. Um, they're both... They're, well, the the one that was published last week is the is the sequel to the first one I wrote, which is called Battlestar Suburbia, and the second book is called Battle Beyond uh, Battle Beyond the, the Dole Stars. It's science fiction. It's set in a world ten thousand years in the future where uh, machines caught intelligence. Um, and um, and they took over the earth, but they are all they're now all descended from the consumer appliances that we know today. <laughs> so it's a wor- world full of sentient bread makers and psychopathic smartphones um, and irons with attitude problems. And the these intelligent machines have um, they've um, exiled the human race to orbiting council planets, who I, uh, who I that I call dull stars. Um, and the job of humanity is to do cleaning and domestic service for the robots. And the first book is about the conditions that lead to a human rebellion. Um, and the second book is about what happens, af- happens after that rebellion. Um, there's quite a lot in the books about the internet and internet culture. Because uh, in the universe that I've created, the internet quite frankly got bored of the real world. 
um, and sort of boxed itself off um, and went away. And one of the things I talked about in the um, in the first book was my um, way of um, imagining the way that um, machines caught intelligence was well. What if what if um, what if advertising became artificially intelligent and the kind of the the overwhelming desire we have to kind of automate the um, the identification of audiences and then the selling to selling to audiences would that would that lead to um, a situation whereby kind of uh, whereby sort of brand driven means kind of tr- drive humanity off the internet because you just can't be anywhere without somebody talking to you about furniture polish yeah um, and because that does and it, c- it comes back to what we were talking about yeah. earlier as brands become sort of more and more all pervasive in every aspect of digital culture culture how how palatable is digital culture if there's not if there's not there's not room for anything that doesn't have that doesn't have sort of kind of some kind of brand involvement and brand and brand brand interaction at any level so how nothing f- that's just you know not just six degrees yeah. of separation from the next transaction point yeah, yeah. nothing does anything does is is that world fun in in any way whatsoever it could be it could not be <laughs> Well, I hope, yeah, let's, let's all try and work harder to make sure it is a fun world. Well, uh, that sounds fantastic. Available at all good bookshops, I assume. And some bad ones as well. And some yep. bad ones too. Um, brilliant. Well, thank you very much. Um, a, a really fascinating conversation. Um, I'd like to thank my guests, Chris McCrudden and Julia Ahrens. And thank you for listening. Tune in next time for more Future Thinking from Stylus. You've been listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. And if you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe to Future Thinking in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes as soon as they're available. 